This is the Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, and in our descent with Dante down through the Inferno, we have come to Canto Six and the Third Circle of Hell, the place for gluttony. Canto Six is one of the shortest cantos in the Inferno. It features another dialogue with one of the damned souls, and it also introduces the political themes that run in and out of the Divine Comedy. Here in Hell and in the other two sections, Purgatory and Paradise. You will recall that at the end of Canto V, after Francesca has related the story of her first kiss with her brother-in-law Paolo, and Paolo has just been there, silent and weeping, Dante fainted, overcome by the piteous suffering the two of them have to endure. He comes out of the faint now at the start of the sixth canto, and somehow has been transported to the next circle, where he finds new torments and new tormented souls, or, more emphatic in the Italian, novi tormenti e novi tormentati. As he does often, Dante gives us a picture of the landscape before he focuses in on the damned souls there. And, and here's what he sees. All right, let's do it like this. Do you know those long Saturday afternoons in November, when it's raining all day, or not just rain, but hell and a wet snow, all day, and it seems like it will keep falling forever? Well, that's what Dante sees here, and it is forever, and it's not just wet and cold, but filthy, and the ground stinks from it. Now you're glad just to be inside, warm and comfortable, only looking out at this November weather, not out there with the water leaking through your shoes, getting your feet freezing cold and wet, the rain and snow dripping down your collar onto your skin, the hail stinging your face. No, you're inside, snug and out of all of that. But the souls condemned to this circle are out in it, forever, naked, lying down in the stinking mud, turning from one side to the other to relieve their discomfort. Or we can let John Chardy give us his vivid description of the scene. A great storm of putrefaction falls incessantly, a mixture of stinking snow and freezing rain which forms into a vile slush underfoot. Everything about this circle suggests a gigantic garbage dump. The souls of the damned lie in the icy paste, swollen and obscene. But that rain, hail, snow and disgusting muddy slush are not these souls' only problem. There's another mythological creature on the scene, another functionary, overseeing their torment. It's Cerberus. In classical mythology, Cerberus was a three-headed dog whom Aeneas encountered as he came to the entrance of the underworld. But here in Dante's hell, it's not really clear what kind of creature he is. He has three gullets, we're told. I suppose that means he's also got three heads. He barks like a dog. But is he a dog? Dante calls him a huge worm. <laughs> or is, is he perhaps a kind of dragon? Well, add a few more details to this. He's yelling at these souls the whole time, lashing them with his claws, ripping their skin, slicing them up, so that they too howl like dogs. 
But uh-oh, he's noticed Dante coming near. Snarling, showing his sharp fangs, he rushes full force at Dante and Virgil. What now? <laughs> well, almost like some cartoon moment, Virgil picks up a handful of mud and flings it at Cerberus, who gulps the stuff down and then shuffles off somewhere to chew over his meal. And Dante and Virgil are free to move on. And it's worth noticing the contrast between this incident and the comparable one in the Aeneid. There, Cerberus is fed some honey cake, a sweetener to appease him. But here, it's just mud, and not very savoury mud at that, if we understand it correctly. And Dante adds an odd detail now. The ground is covered in these squirming naked bodies, but they're not bodies at all, of course, but shades, or we might say ghosts. And as Dante and Virgil walk along, they seem to be stepping on these bodies on the ground, but they're not stepping on bodies, Dante says, but on emptiness. Well, that's just odd. We'll look a little further into this in a minute. As the two of them are walking along amid these bodies lying on the ground, one of the bodies suddenly sits up straight and starts talking to Dante. Hey, you, he says, do you recognize me? You were born before I died. You know who I am. No, says Dante, you are so disfigured, so covered in mud, that how could I ever recognize you? But while you're sitting up, tell me, who are you, and what did you do to be dumped into this disgusting place? You and all the others in Florence called me Chacco, he says, and I'm here because of my gluttony, like all of us here. Okay, he's done what Dante asked of him, he's given his name and the reason he's there, and, and now he shuts up. Perhaps we picture him, a, a, another cartoon image, suddenly just snapping his jaw shut and looking blank. Dante is so moved he wants to weep, but he asks a question, since he now knows that this Chaco is also from Florence, the place most dear to Dante's heart. I'm not sure why Dante thinks Chaco can see into the future, but he asks him what will become of all the factionalism in Florence at the present moment, that is, in the year 1300. And then we get the first of the political commentaries on the state of Florence. The factions in Florence, Chaco says, will come to bloody violence, and one party will be on the ascendant and drive the other party out of town, and then three years later the positions will be reversed, and behind it all are the sinful motives of pride, envy, and avarice. In other words, it's, it's not a political issue, but a moral one. Dante then names a few of the great men of the previous generation and wonders what their fate has been after they died. Oh, them, Chaco says, they're all further down in hell at different levels. And we'll meet them later, as we descend further ourselves. But wait, Chaco adds, when you get back to the upper world, oh, that sweet place, not like this stinking hell here, p please remember me to the people there. And then, rather abruptly, not to say rudely, he declares that he won't say anything more or answer any more questions, and that's it. And then a very weird little action, again a kind of cartoon picture. His eyes lose all focus as he looks at Dante, and then his head droops down, and then his body just collapses back down into the mud as he'd been before. 
It's as if the mechanisms that kept him going for this brief interval had suddenly stopped and the batteries run down or something. There will be no more life in this one again, Virgil says as they move on, until the last day when the dead will take up their physical bodies again, hear their final judgment, and then spend eternity suffering these same things as now but incarnated in a body, which means their pain will be even more intense. And so Dante and Virgil continue along this circle, talking about things that, that Dante doesn't want to tell us. They come to the pass, through which they'll descend to the next circle. But there at the pass they find Pluto, il gran amico, Pluto, the great enemy. Who is he? What is his role here? Well, we're left with a cliffhanger, end of canto. Here now are a few thoughts about what we've just been through. I, I suppose our first question is, what is gluttony? What is so wrong about it? We, we tend to think gluttony is just an inordinate desire for food, perhaps for good food, though perhaps the quality doesn't matter so much as the quantity of food. Opinions differ. But we're not concerned here so much with what a general definition of gluttony is as with what gluttony means for Dante, what he is telling us about the human psyche in this circle of hell. And the way we start thinking about it is the way Dante opens the canto, with looking at the physical landscape, seeing it as a metaphor for a state of the human soul. Not a destination after death, but as I've said before, as a surreal depiction of what is going on inside us when we take on certain attitudes towards life. So, that steady, depressing, discomforting rain mixed with hail, mixed with snow, and surely not that lovely dry snow floating down, but the wet snow that seeps into everything. Is there any kind of weather more unpleasant? Dante, in fact, says that other circles of hell may be harsher, but none is more loathsome. We just want to back away from it in disgust. Is this what gluttony is about? I like what Dorothy L. Sayers says about this. Gluttony masquerades on earth as a warm, cozy, and indeed jolly kind of sin. Here it is seen as it is, a cold sensuality, a sodden and filthy spiritual wretchedness. Why is that? What is this cold sensuality? Well, well, let's consider that a glutton focuses on food as an end in itself, rather than a means of nourishment or as an occasion for sharing with others. The glutton doesn't say, here, try a bit of this special roast fowl. Th that would be sociable. That would focus on food as a shared pleasure. Instead, well, a memory has just come up about a time I was visiting a friend's house and was invited to dinner. The husband had come home with a very special loaf of bread, and it was delicious. He divided it into pieces for me, his wife, his three children, and himself. There was one piece left, and, well, I, I was a bit gluttonous myself, I suppose, and, and I really was hoping he'd be a good host and offer that final piece to me. And one of his daughters actually asked if she could have that last piece of bread. No, he said, it's mine, and, and he grabbed the bread and ate it himself. I think that's the kind of gluttony Dante has in mind. It's the love 
for a good thing, but taking that love too far. Incontinence. There's no particular malice, but it's self-centered and destroys the good cheer of a party like that continuous rain and snowfall. And more than that, it not only destroys the good cheer of the party, it chills the glutton himself, who may be enjoying that bread, but only in a limited way. He's perhaps more concerned with possessing the food rather than on the taste of the food itself. It might as well be mud, like the food Cerberus is slurping over. Let's next return to that odd detail about the bodies here being no bodies. Dante steps on them, but they're empty. <laughs> Does his foot go right through them? In other words, do they have bodies or not? If they don't have bodies, then how do they feel that rain or hear Cerberus's yells or suffer the awful smell pervading the place? But if they do have bodies, then why does Dante call the bodies vanita, emptiness? I don't think we can resolve this, nor does Dante, and it's an oddity that can follow us through many sections of the Inferno. But a more interesting question is why, when Dante could have raised this point at any moment in the poem, why does he bring it in here? What do their empty bodies have to do with gluttony? Well, if we're dealing in this area with gluttons, who stuff themselves full of food, then perhaps we see what their gluttony was really producing. Not a full stomach, but an empty soul. And maybe it can be put the other way around. Their souls were empty to begin with, and they sought the pleasures of food as a way to fill this emptiness. But it's not just food that gluttony is concerned with. It's all sorts of pleasures that we turn into mud because we're greedy for them and insist on having them without any thought for others or for the social context in which we're having them. We saw in the last episode the way lust is a sin because it places desire over reason. People give in to strong passion even when they know it's directed in the wrong way. Two people can share this passion together, or even a whole group of people, when, for instance, they let their misguided passion for a football team lead them to run riot after a match and create havoc. But gluttony is obsessed with possessing the object of desire, possessing the pleasure, not enjoying it. We can't picture gluttony sharing anything. It's all about having the pleasure, and that's solitary, and, it, and it's as depressing and loathsome as that November weather on the third cycle. It springs from an emptiness inside, and it produces a further emptiness by starving the soul. No wonder Dante can step on them, just like the others at the dinner party who finally just ignore the glutton who's so preoccupied with his meal that he takes himself out of the company even when sitting among them. He's easy to ignore. Picture all these souls Dante is seeing, all together in this stinking muddy scene, but each one alone in torment. Let's look for a second at Cerberus. He's another functionary, a figure from classical mythology given a job in this mythic hell. He's not a guardian of the gate, there's, there's no gate here, but a kind of guard or overseer of this region, a raving mad figure installed as part of the torment. He rushes at Dante not to warn him off, or even, even it seems to intimidate him, but because it's his duty to swipe his claws at everyone he sees. 
he can't distinguish one from another. He too has lost the good of his intellect. And then there's Chaco, someone who thinks he was a celebrity back in Florence, and, and maybe he was, but, <laughs> but what does it matter now? He thinks it should matter. He thinks Dante should have recognized him, and his final request is for Dante to remember him to the folks back home in Florence. <laughs> Has he still not realized his condition? Does he really want Dante to tell everyone that he's lying there in stinking mud, drenched by chilling rain, hail and snow, and crying out in painful distress? But he answers Dante's questions fairly well, not especially graciously, but as though, I think, as though giving him what he wants, Dante then will do what he, Chaco, wants, and keep his reputation alive. What's odd, though, is that Chaco is one of the very few people that Dante meets whom we cannot identify with any certainty. Chaco is probably a nickname, probably meaning pig, but who in Dante's Florence this is referring to is unclear. So the man who wants his reputation preserved is the one whose identity has been completely lost, even to those near Dante's time who were compiling identifying notes to the Inferno. And once he has obtained, so he thinks, his desire, he cares for nothing else, and turns himself off from the world back into his own self-centered misery. Oh yes, and Dante has fulfilled Chaco's request by inserting him into the story of the Inferno. All readers of Canto VI can now remember him, whoever he was. The exact politics of Florence that Chaco speaks of we can put aside for later, just reminding ourselves that the divided state of Florence corresponds to the state of any divided country, of which we know so many today. One party gets into power and squashes the rival party, then the other party gains control and pushes out the first, and back and forth it goes. There are few real heroes in this game, and even the people who play prominent roles have their own private vices. And perhaps it's the vices that urge them to perpetuate the factions. Chaco adds that the political strife is caused by moral turpitude, pride, envy, avarice. What this means is that Florence is a city manifesting the characteristics of hell on earth. The people of Florence need to journey through the inferno, like Dante, and learn how wrong their motives are, and repent, that is, turn around. So must we too, of course, and Dante reminds us over and over of the connection between private morality and public service or public corruption. But does this information about Florence tell us anything more about gluttony? Were the people of Florence gluttons in Dante's sense? Was the problem that all these Florentines wanted to possess things for themselves? All they could think about was how these good things of the community, meant to support the social structure, public office, political prestige, power to punish offenders, money, how, how all these good things could instead be twisted to please themselves? Have they, as a result, turned the whole place, themselves included, into a disgusting mess? And then at the end of the canto, there's Pluto, or Plutus, another figure from ancient mythology. We'll have to see more about him in the next episode. See you then. <laughs>